Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are going to talk about the creation mandate of Genesis and how that relates to homesteading or becoming more self-sufficient. But also, we're going to provide some very practical advice on how to homestead. So this is going to be a very interesting discussion. We know a lot of liberty-minded Christians are realizing how dangerous being overly dependent on the system is, and they're thinking about making these kinds of lifestyle changes. So hopefully, this show will help to answer many questions. Now, Aaron, as we dig into this, the first question people might be asking is, hey, you're a pastor. What on earth does homesteading have to do with the Leadership Now podcast? And what do you know about homesteading? Yeah, yeah I, can, I can imagine that the, um, the stereotypes that uh, people have of pastors might hinder them from wanting to hear any of my thinking on this topic. Because I think most people have a notion, and it's, it's kind of true, that in Christian leadership today, we tend to delegate to Christian leaders the task of being the Bible experts. And because of this, many um, men who are in ministry tend to be very impractical. So they their expertise is limited to driving a pinto to work and preaching sermons and preparing sermons and counseling people. But I, I've always had an interest in biblical wisdom, and biblical wisdom is really about skillfully living out. Christ calling upon your life in all aspects of your existence. So skill, being skillful with finances, being skillful with your hands, expanding and growing in, in your knowledge. And many, again, many, many Christians and many leaders have this notion that to be a good Christian simply means being an expert in biblical matters. And of course, we, we do want pastors to have a high level of competency in biblical matters, but if you actually study the Bible, you'll discover that the Bible itself, as you try to be an expert in it, calls you to to seek wisdom elsewhere too. So for example, in, um, in the word of God, we have the example of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4. And Solomon later in life had some issues, but his reign started out pretty good. It started out on a high note and he could have asked the Lord for a long life or money or whatever, but he asked the Lord for wisdom and the Lord gave him wisdom. He gave this man knowledge of a broad array of subjects. So the scriptures even tell us, and this is in first Kings four, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind, like the sand on the sea seashore. I wonder how many Christian leaders today have actually prayed for that, that God would give them a breadth of knowledge about economics, about law, about music, about farming, about agriculture, about literature. Instead, we've created a culture where everyone has their own specialty. Even in biblical studies, this guy's a New Testament expert. This guy's an Old Testament expert. This guy's the expert in systematics or church history. And you go to the expert when you want input on a particular area of Christian inquiry. And if you're a general practitioner, you're considered, you know, a, a bit of a nobody. But in, in scripture, there's wisdom and understanding as much of it as you can. But there's also wisdom in growing in your knowledge outside of scripture. So Solomon, if you look at the Solomonic wisdom, the text goes on to say, that Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the people of the East. And then specifically, it's like, well, what kind of wisdom? It says he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. It's like, what does that have to do with God? It goes on to say he spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish. So this is a man who understood that as a created being, we live in a physical world and growing in our knowledge of the way the world works and the way the world operates is beautiful. And there's wisdom 
to be found and life there's life lessons to be found in observing and participating in the natural order if you get into proverbs many of which are written by solomon you'll notice that he draws from his observation of how animals function ants for example or the rock badger to actually provide his audience with spiritual lessons mm -hmm. So all through scripture, when you have people that are more agrarian, more connected to the earth, more aware of the cycles of life, they, they're able to draw lessons out of uh, weather, you know, the storms and hail and locust infestations and um, the behavior of animals and the sweetness of honey to teach spiritual lessons. And of course, the scriptures provides us with a robust theology of general revelation. So we call this the word of God, special revelation, but the word of God also teaches there's general revelation that the skies declare the handiwork of God. So I think there's benefit to growing in your understanding of how the world works and positioning and establishing your life in such a way that you have access to animals, you have access to plant life. You 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 you're growing in your understanding of how these things work. Now you can grow in these things by a lot of people spend time on YouTube or watching movies or whatnot. Why not spend time on YouTube watching educational videos on these subjects? I mean, they're being produced all the time. You can watch educational movies or documentaries. You can start to move into this kind of living by starting to build up your supply of tools or canning supplies or buying beehives and you see them on sale, learning to work with your hands, learning to do basic repairs. Little by little, you become a more practical person instead of a specialist who, who's you know living in a concrete jungle and has never planted anything in their life. They've never harvested anything that they've ever grown. They have no comprehension of how plants work. They've never raised an animal. They've never seen an animal butchered. They've never, they're just completely reliant upon the system. Not only is this maybe unwise in a vulnerable world, but I'd like to argue that there's many life lessons and spiritual lessons that you actually rob yourself of when you distance yourself from the creation that God has put you in. So it's interesting how Many people in rural area or urban areas are really upset with, for instance, um, caged chickens <laughs> or caged dogs. They're like, you know, we I don't want my dog. It's not right for a dog to be on a leash or a battery chickens to be laying eggs in cages. They should be out on pasture. They should be given freedom to roam. But these same people don't treat themselves that way. They lock themselves in condos and apartments and homes and postage stamp size lots and literally have zero exposure to the broader environment around them. So we live as battery chickens, chastising people who raise real battery chickens. And I think there's something dehumanizing about that. For example, if we go to the creation mandate, People have read this over and over again, but read it through fresh eyes. In Genesis chapter one, it says in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then it says, and subdue it. What is the it? Here's the it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant, yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with its seed, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Well, how do you subdue something you've never had any encounters with? How, how do you subdue animals when you've created a lifestyle where you're never exposed to animals. You have no dominionship. You have no stewardship over animals. You have no stewardship over the green plants. You're not even around them. The closest you've ever come to a farm or an orchard is the grocery store where someone else has done the dominioning, <laughs> the mm -hmm. stewardship for, and you're just paying them for doing the stewardship that God has called you to do. And as I've thought about this, it, in in many in the mind of many Westerners, because they're not exposed to animals, they're not exposed to plants, they've never had dominion or stewardship over any of these things ever in their lives. 
they're unaware, for example, of the cycles of life and death. Mm-hmm. So you get people who've never seen an animal butcher that just freak out at the idea of an animal being butchered and they're driven to veganism, not for health reasons, but because they just, they almost think of animals as human. Um, being around the world that God has put us in, actually working to have dominion, to manage livestock, to manage the birds, to to manage fish, to manage plants. There's many benefits to this, Chris. It exposes us to life and death. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why people are so freaked out about their own death is they've never really seen death in nature. But historical peoples were butchering their own animals. They understood the vulnerability of childbirth or animal, the birthing of baby animals. They they understood the vulnerability of crops. There was more of a value placed upon your groceries because you had to grow them from the ground with your own efforts, with your own labors. This would lead to less foods, food being wasted. This, you're, you're more, uh, you know, aware of, uh, how do I put this? Your humanity. Like we are, mm-hmm. we are created from the ground. And when we're in the ground with our hands and we're planting plants and we're pulling calves and we're watching baby sheep being born and, you know, we're picking our own eggs out of the nest or plucking our own apples and that the earthy side, the vulnerability, the physical side of our humanity becomes much more evident. We realize, you know, we are creatures of the dust. We are vulnerable to death like animals are. We are dependent upon weather and we're dependent upon a good God who sends the rain and who gives us the harvest. This is why many of the early settlers, even to North America, the pilgrims established Thanksgiving because imagine how much more meaningful Thanksgiving would be if you if you had seen famines mm-hmm. and you had had to actually yep. grow the pumpkin, the squash, yep. the potatoes with your own hand and you were delighted that this year the crop didn't fail. There's a there's some valuable lessons in that I think for us to um, be exposed to and just good old fashioned hard work. Mm-hmm. As I'm hearing that, I'm thinking to myself, we've grown some some beans in our garden, and when those beans are on the table, you eat all of them and you just eat them with much more appreciation. Yeah. You, it's like if the kids throw half the plate out, you're like. No, like those, th- that, that took a lot of work, yeah. right? <laughs> like you don't waste the same even. Yeah, right? it's like if, if you build something and someone breaks it, it's a little bit more offensive than if you bought something and someone breaks it. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a greater, you know, obviously we're spiritual beings, so we want to be working on the fruit of the spirit and knowledge of scripture. But I, I have this sense that many of us are maybe unaware of our own physical humanity because we're so detached and disconnected from, I would just say reality, mm-hmm. the reality yep. of our physical environment. So I, I, um, I've always had an interest in farming, homesteading animals, but I, you know, I lived in the city for most of my life. Six years ago, we got a bit of a r- small rural property and that's kind of taken me to the next level and helped help me. But even when I was in the city, I always loved having animals or vegetables and garden because there's something about, again, just being able to produce even a small fraction of your own food mm-hmm. and growing and butchering your own animals that gives you an appreciation for the world within which you live. And yes, it can be messy and dirty and kind of gross at first because we're so, we live in such sanitized environments where the food's all neatly packaged. I remember when I butchered my first animal, which I think would have been a rabbit. I didn't realize how unsanitary that potentially could be because I had always only seen meat under cellophane in a grocery store. I didn't realize you have to take some care here to make sure this is a sanitary process. Yeah, And there is a certain respect for that animal and there's a certain awareness of 
uh, of your own fragility as you take an animal's life. But there's there's many people again have never witnessed that. They've never been exposed to that. Mm-hmm. They they're terrified. I, I would say in general that people who have never seen animals birthed and animals die are more afraid of their own mortality because it's so uncomfortable and they haven't had time to process that. They're not used to that and they've never witnessed it. Um, so there's some valuable lessons, uh, you know, to be had in all of that. So God, God has called us fundamentally to manage not just our spiritual eyes, but to manage the physical order within which we live. And in that process, as per Solomon, there are lessons that we can draw from that that are that are hard to really learn just watching nature documentaries or, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, buying your food and basically living off of someone else's stewardship. Mm-hmm. Now let's um, let's suppose you're talking with someone that has no experience growing food or farming. Um, and we've already kind of touched on this, but what, what would you say are some of the life lessons that are learned from exposure to nature, making your own food, et cetera? And, and really, I guess the question behind the question is why do this in the first place? I think one of the main reasons people are moving in this direction is because they realize how vulnerable they are within a, a world system that abuses and takes advantage of people. So when you become... When you're a Christian and you're wanting to live out the fullness of the creation mandate and you're wanting to live out the fullness of your Christian calling on earth before you get to heaven, there is there are a lot of challenges. Like we're looking around and we're seeing question marks about food supply. We're seeing a spike in grocery prices. Uh, we're seeing governments freeze bank accounts, uh, exercise control over your employment, You know, closing your businesses, opening your businesses. We're... I think a lot of liberty-minded Christians in particular feel very vulnerable, like the state could take it all away tomorrow. And we can never fully extricate ourselves from the system. Like there's always there's always going to be a measure of reliance upon other people, some of whom are godless people, to, to get by. You know, it would be difficult to be so self-sustaining that you produce your own electricity, your own natural gas, your own fuel, you know, your own build your own vehicles and on and on and on. Like there's always going to be some connection to the system. But at least in the fundamentals of life, it'd be nice for more people, I think, to get to a point where they're a little less reliant upon the world system for their basic commodities. So I think that's one one thing that people are thinking a lot about. But I also think, as I've mentioned, Chris, that there are some just life lessons. So I'll just go back to this one. Like it, it exposes you to life and death. So I've I've witnessed chicks hatching, ducklings uh, hatching, goslings hatching. Some of them survive, some of them don't. It's you know a little bit of a downer when when um, young animals die, mm-hmm. when they're they're stillborn. I've been involved in you know pulling calves and seeing sheep and goats give birth, and sometimes it works out really well, and sometimes unfortunately there's problems. Mm-hmm. And being exposed to that, yeah, it's there can be an emotional reaction, but I think it's good for you to be aware again of how vulnerable life is, mm-hmm. how vulnerable creation is. It's groaning under the weight of sin and there's death in that. Mm-hmm. There is value in children being exposed to that. I know um, if I were to compare how, let's say my youngest daughter would respond to the death of a kitten uh, or an animal now, as opposed to five years ago, I mean, there's a dramatic difference. Obviously she's getting older, but mm-hmm. I think it's been good for her to come to grips with the reality of death. Mm-hmm. And I think not to take this too far afield, but I think even the the, the fear that I've witnessed over the last couple of years, the abs- absolute terror that people have to the point of irrationality in the possibility of dying from a virus is in part connected to the fact that most people living in metropolitan areas have never seen anything die. I remember talking to one of my professors in Bible college, I was probably 18, 19. And I said, you know, I don't know if I've ever even been to a funeral since the time I was five. Like I just didn't know anybody that died. And he's like, you got to start attending funerals. Like you got to, if you're going to be a pastor, you have to be aware of the reality of death. So, you know, raised in the city, just not being around people that died much, I guess it, it, it is, it's, 
it's harder to get used to that than if you're raised in an environment where that's normal. Like it's just normal. You don't look forward to it. You still mourn and weep. But rural people tend to be more willing to accept their own mortality, mm-hmm. in my opinion, than urban people because they're not exposed to death and death terrifies them. Whereas when you're around animals, for example, you just get more used to that. I mean, they're animals, you're a human, but you get more used to that. Butchering animals gives you greater respect for life and where where your food comes from. The dangers associated with managing animals. You know, when you're stepping into a crowd and there's a bull standing there, you know, you're aware of your vulnerability in all of mm-hmm. that. Um, getting used to being around equipment. Some equipment's dangerous. So there, there's a there's there's many lessons in farming, homesteading, working with your hands, just surrounding the whole all the questions about life and death and your vulnerability and the fact that you were you you were created from the dust. It also exposes you to your earthiness. So now that I live in a more rural location, I actually pay attention to crop cycles. Now, I don't I don't harvest crop per se. You know, we grow some of our own vegetables, but you watch the farmers trying to get the fields prepped and then get the seed in and, and waiting for that first rain and then tending to those fields and, and, and the fall rush and the, the amount of money they put into buying equipment to get the f- crop off. And you have more respect for, you know, driving behind a tractor with a series of grain hoppers mm-hmm. on it. Cause you're like, you know, yeah, he's, he's kind of slowing me down here, but he's providing food for us. Mm-hmm. So you, you tend to be just more in tune with, I'll, I'll say, I don't want to sound like new agey, but your earthiness, you tend to be more in tune with the, the environment within which you live and how things like uh, fuel spikes, you know, we might complain about, you know, driving our little suburban cars or our pickup trucks around and the cost of fuel, but these farmers who are paying thousands of dollars a day, some of them are heard of one guy, I think $10,000 a week in fuel for all of his equipment. This affects, you know, food prices and how weather can just throw everything for a loop. You know, if it just rains and rains and rains and rains, or it's incredibly dry. So it exposes us to our earthiness. We really are creatures of the dust. Mm -hmm. It also exposes us to God's creation. The psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So looking up at the heavens, there's a value in that. It's hard to see the heavens when there's lights all around you. But when you get out into a rural area, you can see the stars and it's like, wow, am I ever small? Am I ever a dependent being? I kind of forgotten about that. You... I love what it says in Job uh, 12, 17. It says, but ask the beasts and they will teach you the birds of the heavens and they will tell you or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you and the fish of the sea will declare to you who among all these does not know the hand of the Lord has done this. We see God revealing himself in nature as we observe birds and we observe animals and plants it's, it's really hard to be a committed Darwinian <laughs> the more you're exposed to the environment within which you live because you see such design and complexity in that. We, we had beehives for several years and when you see the order and the, the routine and the design in the way bees function and communicate and build their combs and store their honey. And then when it, when that honey reaches, uh, I guess a certain percentage of moisture, they cap it. They just, they know how to cap it at a certain point. If they cap it too early, it'll, it'll ferment, but they, they cap it and how they communicate where to find, um, flowers and, and even the cycles of, I never paid much attention to when flowers bloom, but flowers are blooming from the early spring through to the fall, different kinds of flowers. So you got a season where there's dandelions and then later in the season you have goldenrod and you're, you're actually paying attention to those rhythms within nature. And it's just kind of astonishing that God set all this up. In Romans 1.20, I'll give you this one. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now we might think, oh yeah, in special revelation. Oh yeah, that's true. But special revelation, the Bible didn't always exist, right? The Bible wasn't 
in its current form until thousands of thousands of years after God created the world. But it says, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what's that passage teaching us? Well, it's teaching us that God reveals himself in creation to the point that we're without excuse. So when you're exposed to creation, you become aware that there is a creator God. When This is why cities tend to breed more atheists because people are disconnected. They're, they have access to the Bible. They have access to special revelation, but they've robbed themselves of access to much of God's general revelation of himself through which he communicates the basics of his existence. I was also thinking about Psalm 23, where the writer is talking about being restored and he makes me lie down in green pastures. He relies me, he, he, he leads me beside still waters and this restores my soul. There's something about, so obviously there's, there's some, that passage is to be understood in a certain literal way and that God does bring us into periods of peace in his presence. But there's also a bit of a, a metaphorical sense there in which he's, he's drawing a connection between the peace of God, which descends upon us when we're in God's presence and the peace that we experience in nature. Otherwise the analogy would fall apart. There's something about a peaceful stream, about a quiet moving stream that's sort of peaceful. You know, you don't lay down your, picnic blanket beside a major highway and just kind of relax and enjoy a casual picnic with your family beside tractor trailers roaring by. You go to a peaceful park where you can hear birds chirping and the sun is coming down and there's a cool breeze. There's something about nature that settles us and that refreshes us. And that is the analogy that God used to describe his presence in our lives. But it's if it wasn't true that nature had that capacity, mm -hmm. then the analogy would fall apart. So again, cities are often great places to live. And I love being in the city and doing ministry because there's a lot of broken people in the city, but they can be places that are a bit lifeless and sterile and humanistic and kind of artificial, Chris, I would say. So these are some of the blessings I've found in choosing to expose myself more to the created order. There's a, there's a certain peacefulness and rugged beauty about creation. This is why people like to travel. You know, I'm not gonna, I, I'm, I'm personally not, my kids wanna do it once in a while, but I'm not all that excited about traveling to an amusement park because yeah. I don't find it really that amusing <laughs> uh, or traveling to Comic-Con as some might do. Not saying those are bad, but there's something about traveling to the Rocky Mountains or traveling to the Great Lakes or, or traveling to a place that's different than the scenery that you're used to that sort of reminds you of the awe and beauty of creation itself. And I'll, I would also say one of the benefits is kids love it. Mm -hmm. You know, kids naturally love to pet kittens and hold puppies and collect eggs. And I know your kids have been out to my place. They just love doing that. I think it's good for kids to get away from their video games, to get away from this artificial world of entertainment that we've created for them and to get them out into nature and just living life as physical beings in a physical world and helping them to see how to steward the environment around them as part of their creation mandate to have dominion over the physical order that God has entrusted to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, really good. Um, so let's say there's a there's a person that wants to learn about being more self-sufficient and they're they want to get their hands on some property and start moving in that direction. What would be your, let's say, like top 10 pieces of advice? And so since I'm in the boat of I'd like to be in this category, just give me top 10. Like what's the top 10? Yeah, well, you're a county boy living in the city. I'm a city boy I know, that's in the true. now. So yeah. I'm sure you have some insight into this. Well, I would say first of all, just let me let me just mention that. Uh, county properties are now generally more expensive, but one thing that I know a lot of people are considering is you can get two or three families and often go in on one. So if you have brothers, sisters, you get along with uh, some county properties have large houses that can be sort of duplexed and shared, or they, a lot of 
um, municipalities will allow a second house to be built. So there's opportunities to do that. But I would say many of the things that we're talking about can be done uh, to a greater degree than they currently are, even in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So instead of just having, you know, a, a green golf course type back lawn, people living in the city that have to live in the city or just prefer that they don't want to kind of go all out. You can start by uh, using your city property. I mean, even if you live in an apartment building, there's something beautiful about growing vegetables and pots on your, on your porch in the city. You can do raised beds. You can um, have animals. You know, if you don't want to hear the rooster crowing every morning, you can have a quiet, rabbit hutch with a male rabbit and a female rabbit a, a well breeding female rabbit by the way like a new zealand white or a californian rabbit or a cross of those two breeds can produce easily around three to four hundred pounds of meat a year that's crazy so that's as much as a small steer so um now you're going to be pouring a lot of rabbit pellets into the into the feed but uh, a well-bred rabbit can breed you know, six, seven times a year, dozen kits per time. We used to breed rabbits. And, you know, if you, if you like sort of a blank pallet meat, that's a very practical way to raise some of your own meat in the city in an area that's probably not more than about 10 feet square. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's, there's opportunities for people to put some of these things into practice. So I'm going to get like super practical I'm not an expert, but I have a lay level knowledge on a lot of this stuff. So one of the things you, you want to be looking for if you buy a property is the soil conditions, which normally I would never have thought about. But if you buy a property that's, um, has a high water table and sandy soil, it's easier to dig shallow wells for irrigation purposes, for example. Um, if you have a heavy clay soil, you probably want to consider growing more like hay or having pastures. Those are just better conditions for growing orchard grasses, clover, and, and so forth. And then you're probably going to want to be, if you have a more clay-based soil, leaning into pastured animals like sheep or goats or cattle. If you have like a nice a little bit fluffier, like loam-based soil, that's when you're going to be getting into more of the veggies, the strawberry patches. You also want to be aware of your soil conditions so you're not wasting your money on planting the wrong trees. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a, like heavy soils and clays, things like uh, silver maples, sycamores, ash, you can grow those in those kinds of conditions, but you're probably not going to be growing sugar maples or, you know, um, some of the, the evergreen type plants. So being aware of your soil conditions will help you to sort of plan out how you're going to use your property. Um, I would also say in terms of expenditures, when you buy a, a rural property, if you do get a half acre, acre, two acres, 10 acres, whatever, you're gonna have to invest in some equipment. One of the most useful pieces of equipment that you'll ever purchase is a small tractor. You'll use it all the time with a bucket. If you can get a backhoe, do that too. But when you're preparing gardens and you're moving loads of topsoil, you're moving hay around, you're moving cement blocks, wood, you're cutting down trees, moving firewood. You will use a tractor more often you, than you can possibly think. So it's a bit of a an output of money. I would say my advice in that regard too is buy name brand because if you buy name brand, you know, Kubota, Ford, um, Massey Ferguson, John Deere, they will hold their resale value pretty much close to what you paid for them for years and years and years. So you're sort of sitting on an investment there. Mm -hmm. That's a really good idea. Um, you also uh, want to, you know, be realistic about the amount of land you have. So if you have a half an acre, okay, you can do a lot in a half an acre, but you're not going to have a, a cattle operation. If you have 10 acres, you still have to be selective on 10 acres. You're not going to have, you know, a large flock of sheep, a large flock of goats, a large herd of cattle, a hay operation, vegetables. So you kind of want to limit it, right? Like start off small. If you're raising animals, start off with smaller animals, chickens, rabbits, slowly, you know, maybe some, some sheep, then move to goats or whatnot. Um, and, you know, maybe into cattle. Horses, unless you're <laughs> going all out, you're going to use them to plow, are pretty much useless. I mean, they're fun for riding, 
but you're not going to eat them mm-hmm. unless you're Dutch. I know the Dutch, uh, <laughs> yeah. you're Dutch. You probably yeah, eat true. horse flesh. I forget, I forget what it's called <laughs> in that. Yeah. Right. But um, horses aren't that helpful. A, a, a small donkey can be helpful if you have pastured animals because donkeys will kill coyotes that may try to get into your pasture. So a lot of people that have sheep or goats, interestingly, will put a donkey out there yeah. or a llama or something like that. Those are very... Those animals are deadly to coyotes that may try to get into your field. Um, I also would say learn how to build fences and corrals. Or you know, you're always building fences and corrals to keep your dogs in, keep your sheep in, keep your chickens in, or keep, keep the kids in. <laughs> keep the kids in, keeping uh, rabbits out of your garden. So having a a, a post hole digger, you know, we call it a PhD, yeah. um, is uh, is important. <laughs> That's great. You can start off with a, a manual one or um, a clam digger sort. And you could even buy like the small gas powered ones for three or 400 bucks and they come on sale. The one manners, those are pretty good. And if you're building fences, by the way, uh, the cheapest way to do it is field fencing. So you always concrete your corner fences in and your corner posts in. And then you go about 45 feet out with your line post, just put them right in the dirt, pack them down. You don't need to concrete those in. You can also move them later and fill in the hole. They actually last, posts last longer if they're not surrounded by concrete, interestingly. And then you just drive T-posts in every 15 feet and you stretch your fence out. So those are that's the cheapest, most farm-like way of building fences. But make sure that corner post is secure because you're going to want to pull, staple the fence to it and pull it the full length to the, to the final post. And you can easily just bend your whole fence if you don't have a good solid corner. Mm-hmm. So that's something, you know, just practical stuff yep. that um, you learn. It's also good if you have a couple different sources of water. So if, um, let's say you're on municipal water, okay, that's great for your house. But if you have a well that you can water your animals, your garden, it's a lot cheaper. Uh, if what you might want to do is uh, find out how deep your water table is. So if you if you want to spend money and have a well drilled, you might be going down like 100, 175 feet. But some people discover that the water table is really high on their property. So you can take a shovel or a small backhoe, dig down as far as you can go, take a a 10 or 12 foot piece of plastic ABS or PVC pipe, sharpen the end with your angle grinder, Mm -hmm. drop it into the hole, put a hose down it if the ground is soft like sandy, and start put a T-handle on the top and just start to turn that four-inch pipe into the ground. And as the water is blasting down at the bottom of your your pipe, your the, the sediment is coming up, spilling over the top of the pipe. And I've done that where, you know, we get down 14 or 15 feet and you have all the water you could possibly imagine, like just full bore. So testing the soil conditions, but let's say your water table is really low. A lot of people will, will have someone come in and, dig a small irrigation pond, you run a hydro line out to it, you throw a pump in it, and now you can water your uh, vegetables and gardens without dumping expensive municipal chlorinated water. Right. Others in the city, great idea to have a rain barrel at the end of your um, eaves trough, your yep. downspout. So just put a rain barrel there. You can get these plastic 50-gallon barrels on Kijiji or maybe Craigslist that haven't had toxic chemicals in it. Cut a hole in the top, drill a hole in the bottom, heat up a hose tap, screw it into the plastic so it creates its own threads. Mm-hmm. And then you can hook a hose up to that and you know water your garden for free with mm-hmm. rainwater coming off your roof, right? So those are some some things that um, you know people should be thinking about. I would also say just learn everything you can about can about animals. The great thing about YouTube is you don't necessarily have to have a mentor, mm-hmm. but you do have to have the space. Uh, friends of mine are thinking about getting into cattle. And I said, you know, the first thing you want to do is create the space. Don't just go buy cattle and then drive them home. And then it's like, oh, what are we going to do? They rope these to a tree in the backyard? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, it's probably not the greatest idea um, if you're moving into a rural property to start off with like large animals. But mm-hmm. again, uh, whether you're in the city or the county, I would say rabbits are a really good source of meat. And watching them breed and reproduce is also provide some great lessons for children as to how, you know, reproduction works. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also, they also make 
depending on the breed, make great pets. But I'll I'll give one piece of advice. Um, don't name the animals you're going to eat. <laughs> Unless we do. Our family had a cow growing up. We named hamburger right yeah. from the start. <laughs> so. Yeah, we, we've done that too. Like my one of my bulls, his name's T-Bone. Yeah. And uh, the previous one was Sirloin. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so uh, a real clear idea of where they're going. Yeah. So it, if you're used to eating store-bought meat and you, you are producing your own, there is a psychological period of transition mm-hmm. where that Yep. becomes normal and it might even take a few years it's like oh, this is weird i i butchered this i'm eating it i don't know it's just different mm. also um you know we do live in a culture where people are used to eating a lot of different kinds of food but it has to be cooked right so we we butchered a goat a few years back and i have a good friend in the church who's uh, has indian background and he he actually took it and prepared it as like an indian dish so we actually went to his house to eat our meat and it was good just kind of getting familiar with how he he made those recipes, right? Because uh, I never, I don't know how to eat goat. Mm-hmm. It's not something I normally would eat, but it was it was great. So same with rabbit, right? If you, rabbit is a very lean meat. And if you start raising rabbits and then you're like, I'm going to throw them on the barbecue. Oh, this doesn't taste very good. It's as dry as a bone. Yeah, because a rabbit hardly has any fat. So you got to learn how to cook these mm-hmm. meats properly. Yep. But it, it can be a good cost saving. So- you want to have, uh, you can have about a half dozen sheep or goats on half acre to an acre pasturing them in the summer, but you always got to buy your hay in the winter unless you have the capacity to cut your own hay, which is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even bother growing hay and cutting hay if I didn't have at least 20 acres to spare. It's just not worth the investment of the bigger tractor and the hay right. buying and the baler and all this sort of stuff, the storage. It's, it's better just to buy it. If you have the machinery, it's cheaper per pound to buy round bales than square, about twice as much. You know, you might pay 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 dollars for a round bale, depending on what's in it. But it's a lot cheaper per pound to feed cattle, sheep, whatever, that kind of hay than buying small square bales, which are easier to handle, but they're just more expensive. Right. So that's another little tip that I um, kind of, I guess, learned the hard way. If you're going to have cattle uh, or sheep or goats, they're herd animals, so they don't like to be by themselves. So you always want at least two. Mm-hmm. And what some people will do is with cattle, for example, they'll you, you want at least one acre of pasture available in the summer per full-size animal. And if they have a calf, that's fine too. So if you wow. have five acres available, you could have five cows with calves yeah. or four cows and a bull. Um you get into the smaller animals like miniature Herefords, Dexters, low-line Angus cattle, and you can put about almost two on an acre, mm-hmm. right? And I would recommend those because you, you don't have to have as sturdy of fences, as sturdy of gates. They don't tear up your pasture as much. Some of the smaller homesteading style animals, yep. which interestingly are more the size of historic cattle. We've bred them so big and now we're kind of breeding them down a little bit because they're just huge. Interesting. It's a lot more dangerous to walk into a uh, a corral with a 2,500-pound bull than it is t- with an 850-pound bull. They can both kill you, mm-hmm. but there's a capacity difference in those animals. So we like the the pure beef breeds, the Herefords, the Angus. You can get the mixed dairy beef cattle a lot cheaper, but they just don't produce as much meat. So those are some tips. Make sure you have enough um, acreage, automatic Automatic waterers, good solid fencing, good infrastructure is good. Uh, in the summer, a lot of these animals just sort of take care of themselves. Like mm-hmm. literally the way my place is set up, I could leave for three or four weeks. And my cattle would be completely fine. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that because I want people checking in. But um, they're going to pasture themselves. You're going to get more out of every acre if you divide up your pasture into smaller pastures. So you, you create like a corral, a meeting area mm-hmm. where there's... Um, a lean-to overhang for the animals to get in out of the sun mm-hmm. or the wind. And three sides of that should be walled in, but not four sides because you don't want them getting in areas that are sort of moist and rancid. And so you always want one side of a cattle or sheep corral to be open so there's some airflow. Yep. And then you have your water source in there. And then what you want to do is just create a series of gates over your property is so you 
it's called rotational grazing. You put them out of one pasture, then bring them in, put them out of another pasture, bring them in, and you close the gate so those pastures have time to regrow. Mm-hmm. If you just turn animals out onto a bro- wide open pasture and let them eat whatever they want, wherever they want, they're like children, right? They're going to eat all the candy, mm-hmm. the best, yes. yeah, the best right. great grazing areas and just destroy the rest. So yeah. giving them little sections at a time allows you to get more bang for your buck. I also wanted to give people some advice about chickens because this is kind of ground zero. Like a lot mm-hmm. of cities now even allow, not roosters, but you know, you're allowed to have a few laying hens and a lot of rural people get into chickens. So um, there's basic lesson, there's meat birds and then there's egg laying birds. Egg laying birds look like a regular size chicken, but they're actually very small when you pluck them. So don't expect to get a lot of meat off of them. Mm-hmm. Then there's sort of hybrid breeds that sort of lay good eggs and also are big enough that you can eat them. But if you're going out and buying meat birds, you kind of have two choices. You have these white rock birds that people buy. They grow incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. You're practically dumping food down their throats like 24 seven. They just, it's unbelievable how fast these things grow, but they've been bred that way to the point that a lot of them are deformed. So they're going to be laying in the ground. You get like sores on their bellies, mm-hmm. their legs turn in. So I'm not a big fan of that. I almost think I feel like a little, little bit abusive raising those kind of animals. It's better to buy like a hybrid, an animal that grows at a more reasonable rate, mm-hmm. takes a little longer to harvest, but it's it's a healthier breed. And if you have a co-op in your area, they can kind of help you pick those breeds. Mm-hmm. If you want eggs, buy like a high-powered breed that's just designed to lay eggs. And if you're feeding them properly, they should lay, one hen should lay about six eggs every seven days. So they lay about every 30 hours. In the wintertime, you have to put a light on with a timer, comes on about 3 a.m. so that they can have sufficient light. They have to have about 16 hours of light per day to lay eggs. Otherwise they sort of just stop laying and they're feeding them for nothing. Yeah. So in the summer, the we get enough light, but in the winter, started coming into the fall, you start having to put your timer on when they go into the coop at night. And they always want to be perched higher than their egg boxes or they'll sleep in their egg boxes and mess in them. The the light has to come on in order to um, keep them laying through the through the winter. And a chicken will lay uh, best between about six months and a year and a half. And then their egg production slowly drops, but potentially you could still get eggs out of that bird for six or seven years at a reasonable rate. Um, A lot of people love the organic or the pasture fed. Okay. This is a bit of a fallacy. So if you're like, oh, I'm just going to buy chickens and I'm going to have a nice half acre pasture of grass and they're going to go out and just eat grass all day and bugs. I'm going to have these delicious eggs every morning. You'll notice within about a week, their egg production will drop off to basically zero. Hmm. Like a chicken cannot eat enough grass in an entire day to get all those minerals, calcium out of it to form an entire new eggshell every day and an egg. It's just not possible. You can eat enough. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to pasture feed your chickens, that's fine, but make sure you're feeding them commercial layer rations or, or you won't get eggs. I'm just telling you straight up, you won't get eggs. Your egg production is going to drop off to almost nothing. So if someone says I'm selling 100% pasture fed eggs, Mm -hmm. they're basically lying to you because they're not really going to be getting eggs or they are augmenting it with commercial rations uh, or they have some super miraculous chicken that no one's ever heard about before because you can do both. So the more, greens and stuff the chicken takes in, yeah, the more healthy the egg is going to be, but the fewer eggs you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of balance that out. Trade off, yeah. Feeding them scraps and all that kind of stuff off the table is good, but they do need a good high quality layer mash to, to get through. Hmm. Yeah. Man, there's so much to know. It's just like, yeah, my parents did chickens when I was a kid, yeah. but I, my only responsibility was to go in and pick the eggs. And, right. <laughs> and I actually, one of the, the chickens uh, pooped on my head as a young kid <laughs> and I hated chickens for a long time after that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why the roost, the, the bar over the door yeah. was there, but Well, they anyways. can be kind of, they can be a little bit disgusting at times. So you, you want to do a little, re- I mean, I could tell you all about it, but we're not going to waste the podcast with every detail. I want to kind of whet people's appetites, but 
the kind of bedding you use, like don't use straw, don't use hay, use shavings in the nest. It's yeah. way cleaner. Yep. Keep perches outside of the box so they're not sleeping in the box and defecating the air they're laying their eggs. Having their perches higher than like keeping the, the boxes where the eggs are going to be laid lower on the wall, perches higher. Don't use steel perches because in the winter it can freeze their feet. Mm-hmm. Don't use round perches. Use square perches like two by twos. These are little things that you can learn. Have a have a door that you can open and close so rats and raccoons don't come in at night and kill them. Having an automatic waterer that's cleanable, that's that's high enough they're not going to sit on the edge and right. again defecate. These are all yeah. little tips you learn. Yeah. But um, don't be intimidated by it. Like keep in mind, I was a city boy raised in, for the most part, in uh, social housing projects, mm-hmm. and you just you can learn this stuff. Yeah. And it's it, people have been doing this for a long time. If you can program a rocket you can learn to feed and collect eggs from a chicken right? <laughs> exactly so, what about like plant life like can you maybe talk a little bit about plants so one of the things i would say if you're going to grow perennials so if you're going to grow perennials to eat so if you're going to grow rhubarb which comes up every year if you're going to grow asparagus apples grapes um strawberries what i would say is plant those in the first year you move in or as soon as possible thereafter because those sometimes take a little bit to sort of get up to speed a year or two, three years before you're actually harvesting. And if you're like, well, I got to go build all this other stuff first. And then I'm going to start buying those perennial uh, fruits and vegetables. It just, you're just delaying the opportunity to benefit from them. So I would say get those into the ground earlier in the process. In terms of your soft vegetables, you know, your, your tomatoes, um, your, um, uh, cucumbers, peppers, these sorts of things. Those, obviously, you're going to plant every year. You can, If you have a little greenhouse or window, you can kind of start them off a little earlier and plant them later in May or early June. That works out pretty good. Make sure you're not so far away from a watering source that you got to lug water everywhere. Don't make the mistake of planting them too cl- close to trees. We, we had a garden uh, that was about... 20, 30 feet away from a silver maple. And we're like, we can't water this thing enough. Like nothing grows. Well, the roots of silver maples grow underground. It's just below the surface. And it was just like, they would just suck the water right out of the ground. So our garden was always terrible. You know, we moved it 50 feet away and it grows like mad. Mm -hmm. So adding, tilling up the ground, a good rotor tiller is helpful too. Tilling up the ground and then adding organic materials like aged cow manure or chicken manure to that and then topping it all with some cheap mulch and then cutting rows in that, putting your vegetables in. That's the best way to keep weeds down Mm. and moisture in the ground. Um, If you want a bit of a windbreak or like a summer uh, wall, people can't see your property as much, you know, Mm. plant rows of corn on the outside of your garden that provides a nice little summer break and you can feed that to your animals as well. Uh, people also need to be encouraged. Like they're like, oh, this is all expensive. Look, if you get into, if you get onto a, a certain kind of rural property, you can actually generate income off of it. Like if, depending how your property is set up, these aren't good. Don't do all of these. Like it'd be a full-time job, but you can generate income off your property. If you have a certain scenic pastoral type venues on your property, pastures or orchards, you can rent those out for special events or wedding photos. I know people that have done that. You can generate income by selling honey, uh, by getting into beehives, maple syrup, although it's pretty expensive to boil maple syrup unless you get some big boiler and using wood. Like the cost of, mm-hmm. you're probably going to spend 10 bucks on propane to get 10 bucks of syrup. Yep. But you can tap silver maple trees. They don't produce as much, but you can still get some syrup off of silver maples and you can Google how to do that. Um. A lot of rural properties, you can have a second house that you rent out or tenant, or if you have extra outbuildings, sometimes people like to rent out stalls for horses. Uh, People sell meat at the road, like not at the road, but they can advertise for um, freezer beef, um, chickens. If you're going to sell to the public in our jurisdiction, it has to be butchered at a licensed butcher. Mm -hmm. You can butcher your own animals for your own consumption, but you're supposed to go to a butcher. Problem is right now with all these supply shortages and everything else that's going on, it's like six to 10 months to even get into a butcher. So you got to plan ahead. Yeah, You don't grow a steer and then call and say, hey, I need to bring him in next week. Right. 
you know, you may need to book in April for a December appointment. Mm -hmm. So you got to plan accordingly. A lot of people sell, it's crazy how much farm cats sell for, you know, you're going to have farm cats around to keep the mice and rats down. So people sell kittens for a hundred, 200 bucks each. Sometimes is a regular farm cat that we used to give away. Um, a lot of people are, who are responsible owners obviously will breed dogs. People I've seen in my area set up kennels because a lot of people have are work during the day and they, they want to drop their dog off at a kennel. So they've fenced in a half an acre, an acre, and they have basically doggy daycare. Mm -hmm. You can create a lot of money off that. People can have daycares for actual human babies, not just puppies, but human babies in, in rural locations. Selling fruit or vegetables at the road. The, the biggest money maker, if you could do it, is greenhouses. But uh, vegetables, you can grow more money out of vegetables and sell them at the road than you can hay or barley or wheat. Mm -hmm. it's, people love buying field-grown uh, strawberries or field-grown beans or peas or uh, tomatoes. Th that stuff will just fly off your kiosk if you have one mm -hmm. at the road. Uh, buy an incubator. You can hatch out eggs for people. You can sell chicks. Um, you can, like I said, raise meat birds. A lot of people from foreign countries. So if I have, if I've hatched out eggs and generally half are hens, half are roosters, and after five or six months, I want to get rid of all the roosters. A lot of people from Asia will come and they'll, just, they'll buy like 50 of them or 30 of them. And they don't mind taking the time going home, plucking them and, and um, using those for their own consumption. So there's, there's lots of ways to generate. But I would also say, because we live in a busy world, this sounds maybe overwhelming. People are like, how do you have the time to do it? Actually, if you set up systems, so your fences are built, it's only about maybe 15 to 20 minutes every morning just before work, you just go around, make sure the cattle or the water is working, check them out, make sure nobody's given birth or fences haven't been pushed down. Feed your cats, feed your dogs, collect your eggs and you're back. It does, it's not that much work. The work is, you know, Saturdays are a day off when you're building a new corral or building a new chicken building, but to actually manage them is not that much work. And it's just a matter of not biting off more than you can chew. Mm -hmm. But even if you're in the city, start off with some raised beds. Um, if you want to raise your own meat, rabbits are the way to go. If you're in a municipality, well, they'll let you have some chickens. Buy an old dog run or just frame up a little chicken coop with a little mesh uh, area out front of it. And all of these things are a lot of fun. And I, I really find, Chris, in all honesty, this being out in nature more, being more connected to the earth has been very spiritually satisfying for me. Hmm. I, I have become more aware of my own humanity, my own vulnerability, how reliant we are upon God for crops and um, maybe even a bit more comfortable with the idea of death because you see it a lot and disappointment and things not turning out the way you hoped. But there's also a certain peace and serenity to that. I've never had anyone come to our little property in the country who lives in the city and say, man, this is boring. They're like, wow, this is cool. You know, yeah. Show me this, show me that. Some of them are like, I'd never want to manage it. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's, there's, there's that, that's natural, that's good. And I would encourage Christian people to, um, you know, get off the screen and get away from just the entertainment and get away from relying so much upon grocery stores and other people to steward the creation that God has given to us to steward. And, you know, do a little fishing, do a little farming, do a little gardening, do a little egg collecting, uh, plant a few trees. Uh, th these are good things. And like Solomon, maybe the Lord will give you wisdom to be able to teach other people how to do these things. Um, so I, I can't really think of any downsides to being a man of the earth, <laughs> mm -hmm. but there are, there are many upsides. And again, I, I'm acutely aware of um, how what we've talked about on today's podcast might almost sound a little strange to my listeners' ears because they're maybe more accustomed to hearing pastors and preachers talk about, again, quote unquote, spiritual things. Mm -hmm. 
but I want this podcast to serve as a reminder that we are also created beings. We're physical beings. We're wrapped in flesh and we rely upon the ground to produce our wheat and our corn and pastures to produce our beef. Mm -hmm. And we are reliant upon good weather and all of that is overseen by God, but we're called to steward it. And there's blessings that come out of getting into the program and actually learning to steward the physical world mm -hmm. that God has placed you in. Well said. Well, thank you, Aaron, so much for that. Uh, and lots of things to think about as we think about how to fulfill the creation mandate that we've been given. As a reminder to our listener, you can hear this uh, Leadership Now podcast, both on the CJXC radio, Canada's constant Christian companion, as well as on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. So make sure to check out those both places. The Fight, Laugh, Feast network has an app you can download that's a very helpful spot to listen to this podcast and others and make sure that you will avoid any censorship that could happen as well. And we just want to remind you as well to like this podcast, share it and to subscribe and make sure that you let others know about it and tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. <laughs>